That's part of my journal every morning is gratitude. Yeah, definitely. And I find I, I write one full page usually every morning. And I find that really makes me sort through my goals for the day, but also what I've accomplished and, and how I'm feeling. Sakata, founder of the Joy Academy and Queen of Joy. That's how my friends call me. It's so important to me that my life is full of joy and that I enjoy every moment because I know how fast it could be over. We can do so many things to bring joy in our lives to create joy and that's what this podcast is all about. I talk with people and they tell me how they bring joy to their everyday life and how they create a life full of joy. So let's dive right in and please tell me after the episode what your takeaway is from this talk. Welcome Patty Shelf Leskos to the Let's Create Joy podcast. We've never met, we meet now for the first time and that's really what I love to find out all the wonderful things about you and please just tell yourself who are you what do you do and then we dive in in what brings you joy and how do you create joy in your everyday life and we start from there oh that's that is a big topic but i'll go right ahead absolutely Uh, we just dive in but so Who am I? Uh, Right now, I'm a journalist, an author, and an adventure traveler, and I'll get back to that. But how did I get there? Well, first, I was a teacher and a consultant and a school principal for 37 years in education in Toronto, Ontario. And then I saw the light and moved west and uh, went to Vancouver. Now I live at Silver Star Mountain Ski Resort, so I'm looking out at five feet of snow on the deck, and I've been out skiing the last couple of days. Wow. uh, I've come a long way. So it started out in, um, I went to school in Toronto, of course, and then, um, but a a few things happened along the way that kind of changed my life a lot. First of, well, first of all, I grew up summers on a little island in Northern Ontario, where we had to get there by canoe and tented for a while before cottaging and we still go there so that made me kind of that was my outdoor beginning and then in grade 10 at school we had to read Lost Horizon and that's uh, James Hilton's story of finding Shangri-La and that really for some reason really resonated with me and then before that at age 10 when my paternal grandfather died he left all of his grandchildren $100 each. And he said, just buy, mom and dad said, buy something to remember him, buy something important. And so I bought a typewriter and declared I would be a writer. Oh, wow. It took me a long time to get back to that. And then in grade 13, there used to be a grade 13 in Ontario. I was lucky enough to go to school in Neuchâtel and I stayed there for a year. And in my bedroom, I looked out over Lake Neuchatel to the Swiss Alps. So Neuchatel is in Switzerland and Switzerland is a really tiny country. So from Zurich where I live in two hours here in Neuchatel and it's in the Mm -hmm. French part, French Mm -hmm. part of uh, Switzerland. 
So I was really lucky, obviously. And um, that really cemented my love of the mountains. So I've got, you know, the reading Lost Horizon and the mountains and the magic and uh, the wisdom of the Dalai Lama <laughs> and uh, all that came together. But for six years, I was a teacher in Toronto. But then those influences really got to me and I moved west of Vancouver and I, I was a teacher and a consultant and a school principal for another 31 years. But I'd always wanted to be a writer. So when I retired at 60, I went to journalism school for a year <laughs> and that was pretty exciting because I was um, 60 and most of the kids in the class were 23. And, but they helped me a lot with, um, you know, I had a secretary when I was a principal. I didn't know much about technology. So I had a lot to learn and that was really stressful, but they helped me and I helped them with uh, contacts for interviews and things. I knew a lot of politicians and school board people and, and I knew them because I was a principal in inner city schools. And in Vancouver, an inner city school means often a school where 75, 80% of the families, families live in poverty and there are um, many children from refugee families and immigrant families. So you might have 90% of the kids don't have English as a first language. So my last school near Stanley Park in the West End of Vancouver had 600 children and 45 language groups. Wow. And I learned a great deal, so. So then I went to journalism school for a year and then we moved to our house at the ski resort. We built it a few years before and retired to retire. But then we started international travel. And who is we when you say we? Oh, excuse me, yes. Somewhere along the line, I found a lovely husband. <laughs> he used to be, uh, used to be a uh, mountain guide and then became a teacher. So then that part of the mountains and the influence of the outdoors came together really nicely. During our teaching years, we sailed on the coast of British Columbia because we had long summers as teachers. But then, you know, believe it or not, I did not have a passport after I came home from Switzerland. We did lots of um, trips in North America, canoe trips and hiking trips, skiing trips, but not international. So when we both retired, we did our first shakedown trip to uh, the UK and we, we hiked the west coast of the uh, west half of the coast to coast trail. And that was my first time really backpacking for any more than three days at a time because we usually only had weekends. And then our next trip, we kind of took a giant leap and we went to Tibet and uh, we flew into Lhasa at 12,000 feet. And then we drove west and uh, for five days. And then we hiked something called um, Mount Kailash, which is a three day Kora or walk around um, a sacred mountain. And the top altitude there was 18,600 feet. Do you know the, the equivalent in meters? Because I'm not good in feet. Yes, it's five, six or something. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's high. Yeah. And, and I was fine. We went very slowly and I was fine. But that was my first time at altitude. My husband, Barry, had done that as a mountaineer, but that was my first time. So then we thought that worked out really well. So, and it was about three and a half weeks altogether. Um, we also, on the way back to Lhasa, 
went to Everest Base Camp North, which was not quite as high, but close. And, uh, and then we took the roof of the world train from Lhasa back to Beijing, which is quite an experience as well. It's an overnight train. So we thought oh, that went well, that was three and a half weeks. We can be away that long. So we decided we would go to, to Nepal the next time. And uh, Barry said that he wanted to do the Annapurna base camp trek. And, if, and then we would do the Annapurna circuit around the outside of the circle. And I said, well, I'm kind of interested in this area called Upper Mustang. It's very Buddhist, it's near the Tibet border. Let's go there. And then we said, well, you know, if we're there, we might as well do the Everest Base Camp trek. So we did all three <laughs> and we wow. stayed for three months. Yeah. And we were 65 at the time. And how did you train before? Did you do some workouts in, in Canada? Oh, um, yes. Um, Barry is a, was a, a teacher, but he also has a degree in physical education and science. He's always been interested in training. Me, not so much, but. Um, I love skiing, so cross-country skiing in particular, we do all kinds of skiing, but cross-country is really good training. Uh, summer hiking, and in the summer also, I do a lot of swimming and rowing, and, and for a brief time in my 40s, I did uh, triathlon for a while. So before I became a principal and I had enough time, I did a half Ironman. And then I became a principal and didn't have enough time to train. But mostly it was the skiing, really. The skiing with a backpack on, you know. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, yeah, that's like another level of training. I hate cross-country. I, I did it only in school. And it was like, oh, no, come on. When I can slide down a mountain or just, yeah, jogging and cross-country is not for me. But if you do cross country with a backpack, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was not a heavy backpack really, but try to put a bit of weight in it just to get used to it. Yes. You know? And of course yeah. it, it makes sense to be trained when you go to a high level. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you, you walk usually four hours in the morning, eight to 12 in the morning and then have a long lunch and then, uh, another two hours in the afternoon. It's not really that drastic. I mean, there are people that walk longer days, but most of the, the ones that we do are not that long. So um, at the end of that trip, just before we left uh, Namche Bazaar on the Everest circuit, Barry had, a, we're not sure what it is, but something like an angina attack, which is unusual because he's so fit. And he had, we had to be airlift evacuated by helicopter oh, wow. to Kathmandu. And uh, he had a stent put in one of his arteries at midnight that night on his birthday. We all sang happy birthday. Oh. <laughs> and then, but, you know, and then we had to stay for 10 days for observation. We got an amazing doctor who was from India and was there to train the Nepali cardiologist. So um, it was fine. We got probably way faster surface service there than we would have in Canada. Wow. So we came home and, you know, he took it easy for a while, but he's totally back to training and fitness and everything now. Wonderful. But, you know, we'd been there for three months and it was just the two of us and the same guide and porter for three months. So of course we got to know them really, really well. And we learned about their village and where they'd come from. And we decided we wanted to go back and volunteer at their village and then, you know, do another trek. So we planned that several years, two years later. 
but before we were going to go, Barry ruptured his Achilles tendon because he was running in the driveway sprinting with our grandson. <laughs> so, so he couldn't go. And I thought, uh, you know, I was 67, almost 68. And I thought, I can't wait because if I wait too long, maybe I'll never go because my sister was ill. My best friend had cancer. She beat it, but and uh, both my parents had died. So I just had my brother and sister left. And I thought, you know, if I don't go now, I might never go. So I could be the next one to get sick. So I gathered my courage and I went by myself for two and a half months. Yeah. And it was, it was scary at first. I mean, I kind of demanded Raj would be my guide, the same guide, because I trusted him and we had lots of fun. And the scariest part, frankly, was going into the Kathmandu airport because you get there from Hong Kong at 10 at night and it's just crazy. There's um, crowds of taxi drivers trying to get your attention and people want to carry your bags and, and, and you know, they, they're looking for money, of course. They're not bad people. They're, it's just crazy. But Raj was right there to meet me and Aww. after that, it was fine, you know. So... Um, so I how beautiful how you build up the relationship over three months. I mean, a week would be nice already, but three months, that's like a relationship can really develop and you, you know each other without words, I guess. So yeah. like yes. being greeted by him must have been a very, very good feeling. Like, oh, I'm, was. I'm yeah, yeah, big hug. Yeah, yeah, he's a big Aww. guy. Yeah. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. We spent a day in Kathmandu spending money that um, some uh, student, you know, uh, some teachers and students had made and family and friends, everybody sent a little bit of donation. So I had a thousand dollars to spend on school supplies. So we did that for an entire day. And then we headed out to his village, takes seven hours over very rough potholed roads. And, uh, and I stayed there and I was a teacher for a few weeks. And I had not been a teacher for a while, right? I'd been a principal. And then going into this school was really crazy. It's very remote, uh, one tap in the village, kind of intermittent electricity. The rooms are just really cement bunkers. So nothing sticks on the walls. It's very primitive compared to what I was used to as a teacher in Canada. The kids are fabulous and the people were so welcoming and kind of had to learn from the teachers what, what worked there and what didn't. How did but, they uh, manage to use what they what they had? Yes, yes. Yeah. And they were thrilled because I made a lot of um, teaching materials to take with me. You know, I went back to being a grade two teacher kind of, and, and I took two duffel bags. One was for me for trekking and stuff. The other was full of school supplies that I was able to leave there. And then after we were there for a few weeks, um, we went on a tour around the area to deliver the school supplies that we bought in Kathmandu because we wanted to give them to some of the other schools. It was mostly sporting equipment. And then they had a surprise for me. After about 10 schools, we went to a village where no one had, no foreigner had visited. So nobody had helped these people. So I was the first foreigner to visit the village and I felt like Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> There were rows and rows of children with um, flowers Aww. and that it was just amazing. And they made me feel so important. And I thought, who do they think I am? You know, like, <laughs> but they wanted to show me their village and they showed me their school that the villagers had built 
It was a two-story school at 55 years old, uh, made of mud and stone, really. And, and the top floor was condemned because it was in such bad shape and it was falling down around the children, but they were still using the main floor. It's very, very dangerous. And they said to me, could you help us build a new school? And I thought, do they think all Westerners have a lot of money? Or of no course. Money? What could I do? And I felt like such an imposter and I felt really badly taking their time and you know getting their hopes up. And then we left and we went to um, the Kathmandu is the largest city in Nepal. The second largest is Pokhara. It's on a big lake and it's kind of a resort town. And we went there for a few days to have some pizza and wine, <laughs> do the laundry and, you know, just have a rest. And then we set out for the trekking portion of the trip, which was a month in the area of Upper Mustang that I loved and wanted to go back to. And all the time I was in Upper Mustang, I was thinking, what can I do? What can I add? And at first, my goal was to go and write travel articles about the effects of tourism in Upper Mustang. It only opened in 1992. It's still restricted as like Bhutan is restricted. You have to have certain permits to get in. And we were going to this festival, a Buddhist festival called the Tiji Festival for three days in the capital city. It's a medieval walled city um, of Lomantang. And it takes several days to get up there over some pretty high passes. And, you know, we made it up there. And all this time I was stopping and interviewing people along the way. There are some photos that I sent you. There's one of me sitting in the kitchen with a fellow called Erkan, uh, who is the owner of Burkuti Lodge. And uh, I interviewed him and we had a great time. And I thought, oh, maybe I could write some travel articles. But then I started meeting monks who were teachers who ran monastery schools. And the most important one was called Kenpo Swang. Kenpo is uh, like a doctorate. And um, he ran the Namgil Monastery School. And he it was really north near the Tibet border in a very remote area. And it was a boarding school for children in the area that would have no education at all because there's no schools at all in that area. And he would go to Singapore every year for five months to give Buddhist teachings to make money to come back and build more dormitories and build up the school. And when I spoke to him, it was like speaking to another principal. Same wishes. And he really kind of encouraged me that maybe I could make a difference and do something in Apra village with the school that Devi Jalkamari school it's called. And so after many days of um, trekking back south and finally at the end of the time, um, I went to a rotary meeting in uh, Kathmandu with a fellow called Prem Katri who ran the trekking company, uh, Raj's boss. And uh, he said, get involved with rotary when you go home. And so I went home and spent the next few months thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And um, then my husband and I and three friends formed a nonprofit called Nepal One Day at a Time. And we started to think about raising money for the school. And I also joined a large rotary club where I live. Um, the closest town to the mountain resort is Vernon, British Columbia. And so I joined the rotary club and that was kind of all in the works. And then in 
April that year, a year, a year, a day, year to the day where, when I had been in the village where they'd asked for my help, the earthquake hit Nepal. Oh, so it was yes. 2015, April the 25th. And the center of the earthquake was that area where I had been. It's called Gorkha. So that was the epicenter. Everything was ruined. In the village where they asked for my help, the school fell down and every home in the village and several people were killed. And all over Nepal, there were 8,000 deaths. So we thought, okay, we got to do something. Oh, and, and Raj sent me a, a photo on Facebook of him standing in the courtyard of his family home. And beside him was a pile of rubble and that was his home. So we, um, Barry, my husband is a wonderful photographer. So we had lots of photos from the first trip for the three months. So he put together this amazing trekking slideshow and we showed it here at Silver Star and this community is very supportive, made a thousand dollars in the first night. And then I took the project to Rotary and um, over several years, we have built a school. So there's an eight room schoolhouse with two toilet blocks for girls and boys now in the school. It used to be kindergarten to grade eight and we've now, they've now been able to expand kindergarten to grade 10 because um, a Japanese group built extra and some more classrooms. And now we're setting up the computer lab and staff room computers and printers for the teachers. Oh, and in between, I went back, we went back in 2017 to see the first four classrooms done and went on another track. We were 70 at the time, so but we still went on another track, a really good one, Manaslu Circuit and into um, Sum Valley, which has only been open since 2008. That was amazing. And then in 2018, I went back to see the school finished and took... Um, one of the high school groups here that are, it's called Interact. It's like a junior rotary. They gave me $1,500. So I bought um, library books. They had no library books in the school, nothing. So I spent that on library books back and they welcomed us back to the village with a parade of the entire village. And how, how did they do with, uh, with the houses, with the homes? With the earthquake? Yeah, after uh, the earthquake, you you were like focusing on the school or on the whole yes. village, or you supported everyone. How how many people are living there? Um, I think it's about five hundred in the area. Um, we have now started. We started with the school and had started, you know, with that. Um, some of the it's subsistence farming. Some of the families do have jobs outside. And uh, they've been able to rebuild homes, but very few. So um, our next thing is homes. So um, a group, it's not a rotary project because you can't do capital projects for individuals, but it's a group of friends from Rotary, from our club here, have raised enough money for two houses. And we were supposed to go last fall to help build the houses. Um, that's going, that's on hold. We, If we can't get there soon, we may just send the money and have the, the group. I should backtrack a bit. The, the trekking company that we go with is called Ace the Himalaya and the boss is Prem Katri. He also, as I said, is a Rotarian and he runs an NGO called Sambhav Nepal. 
So there is an official body that we work through when we send money, it goes to Sam Nepal and then he organizes the projects. So our next thing is the home building, yeah. And, and now at the moment they live in tents or how do they, they, um, they live? Well, uh, tarp shelters with tin and tarp and bamboo. This, they, had, they were amazing. Um, when the school fell down, they made a school with dirt floors of tin, you know, corrugated tin and uh, bamboo and everybody. And there was a, you know, a room for every class and they all kept going to school. It's pretty, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for the teachers. But so this all, when this all came together, when I came home, I started writing articles and then it finally came into the book, which is called Nepal One Day at a Time. And that's what it's like one day at a time while you're walking, while you're trekking. And now while I'm fundraising, you just do something every day as much as you can. And on the back, you can see there's the guys I was trekking with. So Raj is on the left, the big guy. And then two fellows that were helping. They were, uh, we had an extra porter for a while. So it's Raj, Rasham, and Tika. Tika was our extra porter because in that area in Upper Mustang, you sometimes can't get a lodge that's suitable. So we had tents. He was carrying tents. But uh, yeah. And that's, we're at about uh, 4,000 meters, I guess, four and a bit. Yeah. And, and, um, what is the book about? About your life and the whole journey, or you're focusing on on the social life there? Or when when I want to buy this book, what do I have in my hands? Well, all of, all of the above. It's it's kind of about um, the first part is me facing my fears of going myself. You know, what happens if I get sick or lost, or you know, I can't find Raj in the airport. All of that stuff. And then it's about teaching and what I learned through teaching in that country and with those children in that remote village. And then it's really more of the story of what I told you about going to the other village and finding out that they wanted my help and how my focus changed over the month long trekking from just writing travel articles to actually doing something and making a difference and how it came together. So I hope it, like, it's my goal to inspire other people to do this kind of thing. And not everybody can travel, not everybody's as fit. I'm very lucky I have, you know, good ancestors, but- um, Yeah, and good yeah, training discipline, you know? Only yes, ancestors true. don't help if yeah. you are lazy eating um, French fries all day long. <laughs> oh, I yeah, have French fries. It's, it's a choice take care of your body and and stay fit and healthy so um and and it's up to you no judgment but um you say i'm lucky but you are probably pretty disciplined too and and enjoying the whole process mm. i i do love french fries i allow myself french, I love fries. french fries too but not I go, every day yeah if i go for a long ski long cross-country ski like two hours okay i can have french fries once a week <laughs> Yeah, nothing against yeah. French fries. It's just like yeah. the habits, the daily habits, they have such a big influence on our lives and on Absolutely. our bodies and health. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, listening to your story, you're you're shining and just it's so much joy in your in your in your talking. 
but I ask anyway, like what brings you joy? Like the connection with people, I guess. And, and also helping is just giving is, is a good feeling, but can you tell us a little bit more about um, this brings me joy and this too, and maybe also in your everyday life in Canada, like the, the normal one day at a time life, what brings you joy? What is um, here? It's um, obviously living in the outdoors. We're very lucky to live at, at a ski resort. The ski way is right behind our house. So discipline helps, but There's very little excuse when you just have to go out the back door and go skiing. Yeah, so, but you you could stay in in your living room all day long if you I could, yes. yeah you could <laughs> yeah, but it yeah it's very beautiful here. We we live in the forest. It's very quiet, and we are lucky enough to have cross country and downhill skiing. You know, right close. So that's fabulous. I mean, I, and I have a husband who wants to do those things. He's the one that gets me out doing it. So that's really good. That brings me a lot of joy. And it's a wonderful community. We do a lot of fundraising here for the ski patrol and the fire hall and that I'm involved with a group of women that do that. So that's, that's fun too. But really, I think the biggest thing in my career as a teacher and now helping in Nepal, it, the joy is being of service really, and knowing that you can make a difference. And I do, I do a bit of volunteering here. We have a program that sponsored by Rotary called the Starfish Program. And so we do backpacks for 90 children in the local area every week and send them home with the kids who are, maybe their families are struggling right now and they don't have enough food. So it's uh, two, two uh, weekend meals for the family. So that's local and that's easy to do here. It only takes a few hours a week. And then of course, the being of service when we're away. So, um, you know, every day I'm doing something maybe to get to uh, get the word out to, because all for my book, all the profits for the book go back to education in Nepal. None of it comes to me. Well, I mean, it comes to me and then it goes to Nepal. So, yeah. So just, I don't know. It really, that brings me a lot of joy to be able to make that difference because we live in such a, a world of privilege as Westerners. I mean, you certainly do in Switzerland as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, I learned that probably from being a principal in the inner city in Vancouver and I met people and it is about the people, the wonderful people from all over the world. They may not have had much money, but they were amazing families and wonderful children and smart kids and they they deserve a chance all those kids des deserve a chance so it, it's interesting that while I didn't want to stay in education I've actually ended up in education but in a different way and, and making a difference hopefully with those kids so yeah and I feel with you I think like um, projects, development projects in, in, in other countries are so tricky that you don't come in like, I'm the solution and listen to me and I have so much money. You know, the, the respect and the like eye level work and, and appreciation and, and just working together and also that it is sustainable and not after you left You know, I know one, one woman told me I was working on a water project in South America and because people were drinking the, the poisoned 
um, river water from the gold mine and they got sick. So they built the water pipe from the other side of the river, the spring water to the village. And after they left, the, the boss family took off the, the what's that? The, the tap? Not the, not the hose, the well, can I say it again? The tap, the faucet? The tap, yeah, the tap. They removed the tap and said, <laughs> you can ask us if you want to have clean water. And then two weeks later, everybody again went to the river. And she said, I will never do a project like that again. It was so short-sighted. <laughs> we didn't know about the whole, you know, the, the system in the village. And we were just like helping from the outside. And what mm -hmm. you like, just your friendship with the people there, everything talks about like respect and, and wonderful work together and being of service without like this hero, shiro attitude. I think it's... Well, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. But I must say, when I first went to start teaching, I thought, oh yeah, I'll teach grade two, that'll be fine. Well, you know, it was, <laughs> it was so different. I really had to kind of take a step back and watch the other teachers and find out. They do a lot by rote learning and they kind of wanted me to introduce new techniques, but I was doing it too for the children. So, but it worked out at the end when I started to step back and listen to, and modify what I was doing. But, and I learned quite a bit from being in the inner city schools in Vancouver about listening. I had no idea that I was in, you know, I came from a middle-class family. I didn't think we, we didn't have a lot of money, you know, but compared to those families we did. And, you know, the white privilege of being born in a country like Canada is, is huge. So I really learned and was taught by others to, um, to listen and say, no, maybe this is what I think you guys need. What do you, what do you think you need? And so the principal of the school, Debbie Jell Kamari School has a list. He had to make a list for the government, just like I had to make lists when I was a principal. What are my goals? And we're checking them off. He wrote them all out for me in English because he only had them in Nepali when I was there in 2018. And he didn't have a, of course he didn't have a copier. So while I was visiting classrooms, he wrote them all out by hand. And we're checking off that list, you know, now it's kindergarten to grade 10. Now it's, we're getting computers for the kids and the staff. So there's those steps and there's, you know, there's long-term goals. So, but they're there, the long-term long -term goals are their goals, not, not my goals. And it sounds so harmonious and such a good vibe in this in this in this village. Is that really not? Is that really true? But like, how <clears throat> were you lucky to be in a in a beautiful community, or is there just the vibe of being like nice to each other and kind and and supportive and let's do this and like this this. Um, action mode of, of the village? Is that unique there? Or is that just like common sense? Like, let's do good things together. Um, the, the people of Nepal are pretty amazing. I mean, in that village and all the villages I visited, I'm sure there are little factions of people that, you know, like this or don't like that. But the, the thing is we work through Prem at Sambav, Nepal. And the villagers in that area, because he's from that area, he came from there, they know what he's done. This is not the only project um, 
they've just opened a new school in his own village because the school that I was volunteering in was totally wrecked in the earthquake as well. He gave his family land to build a new school. And then actually it was sponsored by Sambav Nepal Schweitz from Switzerland. And they put all that money in, but he's the one whose boots on the ground. So having that and having that confidence and he knows how to approach the villagers through me. Plus I've been there what four times and I always try to be the way I was when I was a principal, which was to say, I'm not working, you're not working for this school. We're all working together. I get my, the cook that we have with us to make tea and we have tea party and I tell them what a good job they're doing because they are, they're amazing compared to what I, you know, what I was teaching in and, and uh, ask them what they want, you know, and try to remember their names and uh, try to establish a relationship. So it's not help the schools, not just send the money, but, People can't wait. We may have to just send the money. But it's about building the relationship with people and the village long-term, getting to know the children. Like when we're there, we camp, and um, <laughs> the, the kids come at night because they want to play cards with us. And so you'll hear this little rustle, rustle, rustle outside the tent or the dining tent, and they will come and want to play um simple card games like memory where you flip cards over and they have to match and stuff. But that's the kind of thing that we want to do is have that relationship because once all the other goals are set, we want to be able to raise money for scholarships to send the kids that are the brightest and want to go to Kathmandu after grade 10 for boarding school and to continue their education. Yeah. And the people, uh, the children you built, of the relationship while playing memory, they will be yes. the grown-ups uh, yeah, in, in exactly. a few years. And then yeah. you have like a bond, which is yeah. even, even stronger <clears throat> than, than uh, with the other grown-ups. So beautiful. I just love, you know, like I love people. I love connections and how we, we kind of fall in love with each other I'm so like I, I was drawn to Japan all my life and I went there and it was like coming home and how mm -hmm. we are drawn to countries and then we we just it's just so good to be there and, and build up relationships and create amazing friendships and mm -hmm. projects mm -hmm. and and that's the beauty of our of our life that these possibilities yeah they're just amazing and they the ripple effect you know you you don't know what each word even like mm -hmm. will will do worldwide. You know, if you are kind to a supermarket cashier today, maybe mm -hmm. this night will be different for this person because you were just so kind. That's what I really love. And and uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you know, I never, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd write a book. And now I've got two more planned. So how many planned? Two more. <clears throat> two more. I thought ten more. Like wow. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> two more. no, I may not have enough time for that. I'll be seventy-five this year. Yeah. You no, will be... I'm going to write one about uh, growing up on our summer uh, island. What it was, how that started me as an outdoor person, and what it was like 
before electricity when it was just you know my brother sister and I with my parents and our and our dog and all the skills we learned when in a world without any technology at all so um, that's one and then the next one this one's Nepal one day at a time the next one will be Nepal it's never too late and it will continue the story of the school and the project but also um, trekking at 75 plus you can still go trekking at altitude if you take it carefully so because we've got a few treks still planned so cool <laughs> my aunt she's now 96 we have a mountain cabin in the swiss mountains without yeah. electricity without fluent water so i totally can relate Lovely. it's so beautiful yeah. to be up there in this slow pace and you need to do a lot of work just to cook and wash the mm -hmm. dishes yeah. And um, up there, we have all her sleeping bags of her travels to Tibet <laughs> and Nepal, because every oh, time wow. she went, also intense, when she was, I think she was 75 when she went the last for the last trip. And there was yeah. even snow on her tent, you know, like this much of snow. So we have all our, her amazing sleeping bags up there. <laughs> and um, always appreciate how she was traveling the whole world and mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it sounds the, amazing. Yeah. At the higher age, it's just so beautiful to see the world and and make a difference, even with just being kind to everybody you meet, and you make a difference now in a mm -hmm. bigger, bigger, bigger project. It's so uh, beautiful. And how do you like? I assume that you are a positive person all your life because maybe you had just this amazing childhood where love and appreciation <laughs> were normal. But yeah. how do you, do people tell you like, oh, you're always in a good mood and, but you do something for that. You say you go outdoors and do sports, but what else are you doing for just for yourself, like self-care for your energy, for your, for your well-being? What are your tricks uh, and tools, which you maybe just do automatically, but someday you have no, to no. choose? Yeah. So, no, I've always had a really developed a good morning routine. And my father always got us up very early at the cottage because we were on daylight. You know, we didn't have electricity. So <clears throat> he would get us out of bed and get, get us doing things. But just the last few months, you know, during the pandemic, I was having as difficult a time as everyone else and, you know, not getting much done and feeling low. And because, well, one thing, we could not go to our cottage. We go every summer back to the island with very, just a really nice cottage. And we do have electricity now. And, you know, and then I'm around all my family. So that was kind of depressing not, not to be able to travel. And so, um, I happened upon um, a book called The Miracle Morning. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I know that one, yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. So now since, um, it's for six months now, I have done the miracle, my own miracle morning routine. I always wrote a journal. And of course, when I'm traveling, I write extensive journals for when I come home for writing. But so I've added, you know, the journals, the morning exercises, um, which I always did too, but I've kind of put it into another new package. Um, because if you read the book, you'll find out that I, we were in, well, I've been in three car accidents. Uh, when Not when I was driving, 
once in a truck that rolled down a ravine and landed upside down. And I got 17 stitches in my head here. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> that was a long time ago. But 20 years ago, we were coming in one night to the parking lot at Silver Star Mountain. And uh, the snowbanks were huge. It was December. It was a Friday night because we didn't live here. Then we were coming from Vancouver for the weekend. And a car uh, just rammed up the parking lot couldn't see us because of the snow banks and hit the car, T-boned us. And we saw the, the lights at the last second. So Barry turned enough that it hit the back door. And I was in you know, the front seat on that side. And then it happened again in Ontario 10 years later. So I've always had kind of a hip issue, but so I've always had to do physio exercises in the morning. So I just have to, you know, I've got the journal and a little bit of meditation and uh, exercises and reading usually about the craft of writing. And that's what I do first thing in the morning, every morning and have coffee, of course, too. <laughs> There's something that brings me joy, Nepali coffee. <laughs> Nepali, oh, Nepali coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you because have a grinder and you do the, all the, all the coffee. No, actually. I have uh, Nespresso, yeah, and I make a latte every morning, yeah. So that brings you joy in the morning, and then how, you, how do you how do you just keep your good energy going during during the day or the week or? Well, I do try to plan, yeah. I'm and I don't know. I I always over plan, and then I get sad because I haven't done everything I wanted to do. But I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I launched my book uh, one year ago. And I'm really working on trying to reflect how much has been accomplished since the book went out and all the money comes, you know, back in for the project. And all, yeah, just all the things I've been able to do. Um, I'm trying to spend a little more time thinking about that than you know, what's wrong or what I can't do or trying to think, yeah, I've, lots happened in a year and, and it'll keep happening. I'm absolutely amazed at the, the support from other people when you tell them these stories. It, it's wonderful. People really open their hearts and their wallets. And, uh, you know, our Rotary Club, the Kalamalka Rotary Club has um, about 60 members now. And so they have really been supportive. We have, we make have big fundraising events, and then you can make an application for the money for international projects. And you know they really put a lot of effort and money into building the school and helping, and and individuals in the club and individuals that we know they're friends and family, or just when I give a talk and people hear about it, or when we do a trekking slideshow people are wanting to go like several people have gone to the village since oh cool so, to to meet yeah. the, meet them and yeah. when we went in 2017 when they um, welcomed us with the parade we took the um, former president of the rotary club a lady called mary jackson and then another couple um because uh, prem from the trekking company donated an Everest Base Camp track for two to our big auction, fundraising oh, auction. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Purchased by one of the Rotarians. So he and his wife went to do Everest Base Camp track. 
and went to the village then because the school was built and to see what was happening and ended up donating a thousand dollars to furnish the staff room because there was no furniture it was just a room and then another young woman who was part of the uh, high school interact club um, that made the money for the library books on her gap year she went and did a and taught at the village for a little bit of two or three days but so more people are becoming you know making that connection the canada canada nepal connection and it's like sister sister cities i think when when the the relationships grow and different strings are are built it's so beautiful it's just mm -hmm. a good feeling to be connected internationally and supported and uh yeah so that obviously it, brings it, you a lot of joy and you're yeah 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 and that's are you are you honoring your accomplishments enough like you said you want to um, think about them but like not being like oh i did that all but like wow i yeah i'm doing good are you yes are you, i'm 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 learning to do that. I have a saying that I learned from a workshop I was at that says, um, until further notice, celebrate everything. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. 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 Celebration and uh, mm -hmm. gratitude for everything. I think that's such mm -hmm. a beautiful feeling. Also gratitude for your own body and, and that you can travel and all the, all the things to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. It's uh that's part of my journal every morning is gratitude yeah definitely and i find i i write one full page usually every morning and i find that really makes me sort through my goals for the day but also what i've accomplished and and how i'm feeling and you know yeah so what is what what are the book writing um time time frames like how how long do you give yourself for the next book i i know we met in sps in self-publishing school and mm -hmm. there is the claim like write your book or publish your book in 90 days yeah I, I didn't do that i have now my book is now finished and will will be out in the market very soon it's like wonderful, last wonderful. but um yeah, it took me a year. So how long will you give yourself for the next book? Um, I have a draft uh, done, first draft. I'm on revision chapter five, draft two. And it'll be about 20 chapters because it's a memoir. And um, the last two chapters will be about my ancestors. So. I have to wait till I get to Ontario to do that, to look in the archives and everything. And then the plan then is to, to write those two chapters, put it all together and have it ready for um, end, of, end of this year. Wow. So December, but um, I probably won't launch it until maybe April because that's when people start to think about going to their cottage and opening up their summer homes. And I'd written an article for McLean's magazine, which are, Cross Canada Magazine about renovating our old family cottage. And they held off putting it in the magazine until April because they said that's when people start thinking about that. So I'm thinking that might be a good time to launch because um, and the uh, ancestral part is that my ancestors came from England in 1868. They settled on the shore of this lake 
and then my grandfather that they built one house their son built a second house both looking over the lake my grandfather was born in a log cabin that became the second house and he looked out over the lake and said i'd like i like those islands and he bought two uh, three islands for $25 each wow that's how we end it's just the luck of the draw that we end up having that wonderful place so that's part that's the introduction to the story but I'll put it at the end because you know you start your writing in a exciting place of yeah so So that'll be done Christmas and then um I don't know another year probably for the next Nepal book because it has to be after we've gone back and done another track and put it all together, so. Do you have any advice for people who are dreaming of writing their own book? Like, because writing a book is, you just <clears throat> write and then you have sentences and then chapters and then and then a book, but it's, it's really a process, an inner <clears throat> process to believe that you have something to say and that anybody will be interested so do you have any just advice from your heart for for book writing people Um, well it's interesting because when I wrote Nepal one day at a time I finally at the end you know worked on it for quite a while and then I gave it to an editor that I met at a conference and I thought you know if she says it's a piece of garbage I'll just give it up (laughs) well I didn't because I'd never written a book. So uh, she said, oh, no, highly publishable and gave me some advice of things I could fix and make better and everything. And I did. But um, so, it's you know, and that was all because of conferences. I've been to some amazing writing conferences. And I think that's where you really get you find your tribe for a start. You find the other people going through the same things. But you get so much advice about um you know, individual chapters, uh, you know, just everything. Uh, going to those going to those conferences is amazing. I went to one called um, uh, Book Passage in San Francisco. It's a Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference, and I've been three times. And it's run. Uh, they didn't have it this year, but it w- would have been the twenty fifth anniversary. It's run by. Um, uh, former editor of the San Francisco Chronicle travel section and um, a contributing editor to National Geographic. These guys are top, top level, wonderful writers. And I learned an incredible amount there. So that's how I got to write a bunch of travel articles, which then became, uh, you know, enough confidence to put it together in a book. So it's really just getting out there and joining those people because everybody is afraid I, you know, I mean, even the, you read the very, very best top authors and they think I'm only as good as my last book and they're afraid to start another book. So. So just uh, be brave and do what you love to do. I mean, you are pulled by your dreams and just doing it Mm -hmm. without maybe with hesitation, but you do it anyway. So that's, that's the big Mm -hmm. magic when, when you don't stop, even though you're doubting yourself or um, thinking <laughs> like have, your, your thought this could be a piece of garbage um, yeah. Yeah. and now you have a book which brings in all these beautiful opportunities and uh, talks and and uh, mm-hmm. yeah we met over this book how cool is that mm-hmm. 
And I, um, I have a sign on my desk. It says, proceed as if success is inevitable. Oh, I love it. I love it. Do you know who, who said that or is it? Uh, just a sec. No, it says unknown. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So I try to keep that. Yes, yes. And that's just more helpful as every doubt, like mm -hmm. um, dictating your thoughts. It's just better yeah. to, to focus on, on this direction. So mm -hmm. to wrap up our beautiful hour, what is your message to the world? I mean, you are so internationally set up and um, as we are in the in the worldwide internet, everybody can listen to your message. So like, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you tell the world because of your wisdom and your life experience and just everything? Like just what comes out of your heart? Uh, mostly to step out of your comfort zone, you know? Um, get out there and do stuff. Um, you will, there were, The trekking and stuff that I do sometimes, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't get a shower for a week or two. And uh, But the rewards of meeting the people you meet and being able to be of some kind of service and to learn from them. I was particularly impressed with my young friend that went, um, the, the girl from the Interact Club. Her name is Bailey Morin. Her takeaway when she went to the village was how much she learned from them, how impressed she was that they were subsistence farmers at the end of a long, long, very bumpy, very dusty, sometimes rutted, muddy road, and how well they managed and, and how happy they were and how wonderful. So being able to see that in other people and, but you have to step out of your comfort zone to do it, you know? Um, Yes, you're going to be in a crowd of people that speak a different language. So what? You're just not that important. Listen and find somebody to help. You know, there's there's so much that can be learned and from relationships with people and for from going past what you think you can do. And, and listen, listen to your heart, right? You you mm -hmm. wanted to go to this mm -hmm. part of the whole world. We can't go everywhere and help everywhere, but this is like your place and find your own place, I think is mm -hmm. like, where are you drawn to? Maybe a totally different area of the whole planet and then go there, look at places, travel. And, <coughs> excuse me. And never doubt that one person can make a difference. You can make a difference. Other people will come along with you. You just have to be open to all the opportunities. And when somebody says, in my book, for instance, did I want to go to this cave monastery? We haven't ever been that way. It's very different. What would happen if I went? And uh, that changed my life because I made that decision to go that day to that different place and to go to the village and to meet the people and think, oh, maybe I could make a difference. So never doubt that one person can. Yeah. Thank you so much, Patty, for this hour of talking together over an ocean i love that this is possible every time i'm amazed i mean hello here we can talk on camera this is so good when i was in japan 20 years ago there was no skype no zoom no smartphones 
And um, yeah, and you can tell even more stories about the earlier times. Like it's just, I'm grateful for Zoom and the internet that I could connect with you in this way. Oh, I am too. When it's especially lovely to speak to someone in Switzerland. I haven't been there for a long time. I did go back in 2015 because that was my 50th high school reunion. So we went back to Neuchâtel and stayed for a few days. And then we, because we never go anywhere unless there's hiking involved, we did the Tour de Mont Blanc. Okay. Yeah, so that was lovely. It was so wonderful to be back in Switzerland. I mean, in France and Italy, yes, but it was so great to be back in Switzerland. It really opened up my heart. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Nice. And I, yeah. I was once on a canoe tour in Ontario um, oh. with tents for five days and I'm so in love. Uh, when you talk from your islands, I'm like, oh, can I visit please? So, <laughs> sure. Uh, let's, let's meet somewhere there or here yeah. and uh, get to know each other in person because that's like the very best. Yeah. After Zoom, like in person, that's, that's mm. even better. Thank you so much for this interview. Have a wonderful day and um, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes if you liked it. Also, make sure to join my free Joy Group on Facebook to discuss this episode and other Joy topics. And you can find the link to it in my show notes on joyismycompass.com slash blog. If you are looking for ways to incorporate more joy into your daily life, I've got the most awesome tool for you. Head over to joyismycompass.com UA to hire your personal universal assistant. What is that? You'll find out. Just click on the link joyismycompass.com UA. See you in the next episode.